some companies still know how business casual is done. It's strictly business. Uh, uh, uh. It is Friday. It's Friday, which means it's casual Friday, Daniel. It's fair day here at Market Scale, actually. That's right. You better believe it, folks. It is such a business casual Friday here at Market Scale that Tyler Kern and your other host here, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, are going to the Texas State Fair. We're going to be eating funnel cakes. We're going to be eating corny, corny dogs. We're going to yeah. be uh, riding Ferris wheels. We're going to be spending obscene amounts of money for things that cost like $3 outside of the fair, but you know what? The experience is worth it. The experience is worth it. it <laughs> I'm also wondering now, because it, it, this just kind of came up in my brain while you were talking, but at what point did, at what point in the age curve did we go from calling it corny dogs every time to corn dogs? Or Ooh. did it have like, all of a sudden it became, oh, it's, it's corn dogs now. Well, I was calling it corny dog in like a... Like a fun, quirky way. Yeah. I don't actually call them corny dogs. Right. Do, do people actually call them corny dogs? I thought kids did. Maybe. Mom, I want a corny dog. Yeah, right? That sounds right. <laughs> that sounds right. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, hey, kids are also eating dino nuggets and mac and cheese oh. and eating Tide Pods. So, you know. If I could, I would still have the diet of an eight-year-old. <laughs> I mean, I still kind of do. Oh. I was just thinking about this the other day. I go to Chick-fil-A, right, Yeah. Uh, to get food every now and then. Although, sure. you know, I, I've been thinking about, do I really want to go eat at Chick-fil-A anymore? I don't know. That's we'll a different discussion. Different discussion. However. For a different show. For a different show. Um, I, the fact that they have mac and cheese there now, did you know that? I as did. A side? I did. I have not gotten it yet, though. I kind of had like a realization yeah. as I'm sitting there eating my Chick-fil-A mac and cheese and my Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. Go on. Wow. I'm basically just eating an adult version of a middle school lunch right sure. now. And I have no shame. Ain't nothing wrong with that. It's just so good. There's n Nothing beats a little deep fried chicken <laughs> and a little greasy dripping mac and cheese. Mm. Mm. Gotta get that drip on that mac and <laughs> cheese. Get that drip. Yeah. Alright folks. Alright, so today is Friday, October 18th. Daniel, we have a lot coming up on the show today. We're going to have a little bit of an interview that I did yesterday with Sue Hewling uh, from Supply Side West. That's a trade show going on out in Las Vegas right now that kind of deals with uh, food and beverage, but also pharmaceutical. It's, just, it's a lot of different ingredient sourcing and that sort of thing. So, That is what we're going to be talking about uh, with Sue Hewling. So she's going to talk to us. She is the uh, co-founder and science director at Substantiation Sciences. We're going to talk to her a little bit about products that are in development for sleep and for sleep issues and that oh, kind of thing. So awesome. she gives a really, really good answer to a question uh, that, that we had uh, in that conversation yesterday. So we'll hear from Sue coming up on the show. We also need to talk about Qatar wanting to air condition the outside world. That seems a little uh, interesting. Also, U.S. cities are banning new construction of drive throughs So we yeah. need to, as we talk about Chick-fil-A, we got to talk a little bit about that as well. That's so true. lots of uh, crazy and good stuff coming up on the show today. We also need to get into talking about breaking up Facebook and big tech, uh, which is going to be a big topic as well. But... We're going to start off somewhere else. We are going to start off somewhere else. We're going to take a trip. Across the pond. Across the pond. We're going to be headed to the UK. So this story isn't necessarily as timely, 
but I felt like it was important to chat on because it's something we see, I think, more often now, yep. and there doesn't seem to be a lot of safeguards for consumers nor for investors. So what I'm talking about here is Thomas Cook folding. So uh, basically, if you didn't know, in late September, British travel booking and tour agency Thomas Cook folded. They went under, leaving thousands stranded mm-hmm. and causing actually the biggest peacetime repatriation in UK history. The largest amount of people needing to be shipped back to their parent company ever in That's UK history. Unbelievable. That wasn't like World War One or World War Two, so that's pretty nuts. I mean, the kind of impact that a, a closing airline can have on your citizens and on general tourism and travel. Sure. Same thing happened when Wow Air, um, an Icelandic, Icelandic mm-hmm, yeah. an Icelandic uh, airline, shuttered in March of this year, and they were, you know, about a fourth of international Icelandic, uh, like. Mm, let me rephrase that. They were the airline that a fourth of international Iceland flyers went through. Okay. So it was a huge loss for the economy there, clearly, for the tourism industry there. Sure. I mean, when you lose 25% of how people are getting to your space, that's a problem. So I wanted to use this segment to chat a little bit about the shifting travel industry, what to do when an airline collapses, and just kind of the general longevity of bankruptcy filings, which seem to be a little more up in the air than I think the media likes to portray them. Pun intended? Um, sure. Up in the air? Oh, yeah. Pun really intended. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so when Cook closed, mm-hmm. uh, it actually affected international business more than you'd think. Okay. So a lot of European low-cost rivals saw immediate boosts in shares. Mm -hmm. There were some Asian companies that uh, actually saw shares drop substantially percentage-wise, such as Fosun Tourism. Um, And basically, the UK had to coordinate with other airlines to return UK-originated passengers back to their homes. Jeez. So not only does it create a little international tension, but it also kind of forces you to cash in on your allies a little bit, geopolitically. I mean, if one of your key airlines goes out and you've got citizens trapped basically in nations across you know across europe maybe even in the states sure and they took a thomas cook connecting flight or something now suddenly you have to negotiate with those airlines and other countries you have to make good on your word Mm -hmm. you have to bring your people back home um and that you know that is a lot of business and political capital that suddenly you have to spend sure. um, for kind of poor business decisions. Now, in the case of Thomas Cook, I think their closing is really indicative of how the travel industry is changing because Tom- Thomas Cook um, invested a lot of capital in physical brick-and-mortar spaces. When you think of like an outdated booking agency or travel agency where you go to the store and you say, I want to book a trip. Take right. me to take me to Australia. All right, well, let's whip out some flights and let's book your whole trip for you. That is just such an outdated way to travel, mm-hmm. I think. Um, people clearly have way more control over how they travel now. It's all online. Uh, it's all very affordable sure. to a degree. You know, you've got Scott's cheap flights. You've got Airbnb. And people are a little savvier on making those dot connections Whereas several years ago, you know, you had no idea where to start. You needed a professional to link you up with the right hotels and the right things and the right flights. Right. It's just an outdated business model, and clearly they did not adapt fast enough. 
But what was also brutal was they had that side of the business and they were also an airline. So not only were people booking the trips themselves, but they were booking like the content of said trip through Thomas Cook. So right. if the airline folds, uh, not only does your whole trip go under, but now you're stranded wherever. Um, so what do you do if you're a passenger in said situation? Basically, not everything or everyone can be bailed out or refunded. So if you had like a connecting flight through Thomas Cook, let's say, you were basically screwed. Uh, you have to basically start fighting for a refund now. In New Zealand, for example, airlines have zero obligation to pay out in case of bankruptcy. So basically, it's like, sorry, we folded and there's nothing we can do about it. So just buy another ticket, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, I wonder how many people can legitimately do that without suddenly digging themselves into a financial hole. Yeah. It's brutal. Uh, it's just kind of an offloading of subsidizing of those costs onto the end user. Um, so yeah, what, what are your thoughts from that perspective? I mean, like, clearly the travel industry is changing. So if you want to survive, you need to be affordable and you need to, you know, bring some personality, some difference to why your airline is the one to take, which is, I think, why Southwest is so successful. They clearly have the personality, they have the affordability, but beyond that, uh, you clearly need to be flexible and you need to shift to what the consumer is looking for. I don't think Thomas Cook did that. I think that's a really good point, and I think bringing up the Southwest example is great because this is a company that is well-known, I think, for its customer service, for being customer-centric and that sort of thing, providing that affordable model while also uh, you understand what you're getting when you go into a Southwest flight, right? Like, right. it's not a mystery what it's going to be like. Everybody has a pretty good idea of how this how this goes. And they've really flexed and moved to try to accommodate consumers. And, you know, as they've done that, they've been able to grow what they're able to offer, right? So flights coming up soon to Hawaii, you can kind of go different places on Southwest now. And so they've really been able to kind of bend and flex with the times as necessary, as they've right. seen fit. And so I think that, I, I think what you're talking about is maintaining some kind of mobility, being able to be nimble in the marketplace. And I think when you are so rooted in a structure that is clearly outdated, you lose a lot of that ability to be nimble, to flex, to move as you need to. And I think that's what you're seeing with, with Thomas Cook. And in the end, it's always the, it feels like it's always the consumer that suffers, right? Yep, agreed. Well, you know, just to kind of end on a more positive note, we're actually seeing WOW Airlines, one of these defunct airlines, come back, actually. Yeah. So they got an 85 million dollar investment from USA Aerospace. US Aerospace. <laughs> <laughs> nice. US Aerospace Associates is nice. what it's called. Yeah. So they shuttered in the first place, I think, because of that overly ambitious business model. Maybe they went too cheap. Yeah. Maybe they uh, you know, had just too much competition. They extended themselves too far. And I think they're taking note of what we're saying here. We're the we're the thought leaders and the influencers here. Sorry guys. Hey now. They're picking up slowly. So they're only rolling out two planes at first. Maybe by 2020, late 2020, they'd have like 10 planes or so, but they're not rolling out like a whole fleet immediately to charge back into the market. They understand, okay, let's refocus. Let's go into the market uh, smaller. Let's make sure our flights are affordable, are, um, you know, unique. And that when you fly, wow, you have a fantastic experience. You have a wow experience. So, wow. Um, wow. So, wow. yeah, I, I just, just think when you're dealing with something as flex as tourism, I yes. think you, you need to be flex as a company. Definitely. Um, and I don't think Thomas Cook was anywhere near flex enough. So, sorry, Thomas Cook. Got to flex on him sometimes. Got to flex on him. Flex sometimes us. you got to do it to him. Flex is Texas. <laughs> All right. Uh, so... 
I wanted to bring up something that I saw that was interesting. Mark Benioff, the co-founder, CEO, chairman of Salesforce, obviously a lot of people in the B2B space, just anybody in corporate America pretty much has a decent idea of what Salesforce is and what it does and that sort of thing. It's big here at market scale. It is very big here, especially in our business development department. Well, he gave an interview uh, suggesting that Facebook should be broken up. And we actually have part of that interview. It's with Poppy Harlow from CNN. Here's kind of his comments, Daniel. I want to get your reaction to what he had to say about Facebook because he suggested in the past, and it's not included in, in this particular clip because uh, I shortened it a little bit for time, but he's at one point referred to Facebook as the new cigarettes. So huh. uh, yeah, he, he has some some hot, hot sports opinions on Facebook. So here's his, uh, here are, uh, just a little bit of his comments to Poppy Harlow on CNN. 72% of the American public doesn't know that Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. And all of those services are being integrated to get a 360 degree view of you so that they're able to directly position you. If you haven't watched the movie on Netflix, The Great Hack, they talk about how Cambridge Analytica used Facebook data in partnership with Facebook. In fact, they had Facebook executives on site with them creating a target segment called the Persuadables in the 2016 election. They used Facebook to do that. So, so that, by, by fully integrating all of those services, you make Facebook more powerful. Their response, we've heard Mark Zuckerberg in leadership there say is, if you break us up, you just make us less powerful to combat you know, all of these outside forces on uh, election interference and what was done in the 2016 election from the Russians, etc. Is that a salient argument? No, it's not, because what really the narrative is, is trust is our highest priority. Why they can't say that trust is our highest value is beyond me. So, interesting clip there. Yeah. Uh, a lot to unpack as Mark Benioff kind of takes the the same position that Elizabeth Warren has been putting out on the campaign trail that Facebook and big tech should be broken up. Yep. Um, now I read a really interesting article in Wired um, that that talked a lot about this. Uh, but one of the big quotes that stood out to me was this. It says, the biggest media company in the world, Facebook, produces no media. The biggest hospitality company in the world, Airbnb, owns no hotel rooms. The biggest taxi company in the world, Uber, owns no taxis. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that Facebook, if you want to call it a monopoly, you have to at least adjust your definition somehow because it's it's kind of not because the product is also the consumer. You supply content to Facebook that then exists for other people to consume, right? right? And right. so they make a they make an argument that Facebook's actually a monopsony, which basically kind of flips it on its head, right? A monopoly, there's one seller and many buyers, right? So you know Microsoft was monopolizing. Uh, you know, computer software in the late 90s, so it got broken up right. because it was the only supplier and that's not good for consumers. Monopsony, they say there's one buyer but many sellers. So in this case, Facebook is the only buyer of your content, uh, of the content that you supply as a content creator for Facebook, basically. Right. And when they own Instagram, WhatsApp, other areas, then the ability for consumers to say, Facebook's not a good product, I'm going to not do Facebook as much anymore. The stat he cites at the beginning, that 72% of Americans that don't know that Facebook also owns Instagram... Comes or WhatsApp. Into, or WhatsApp comes into effect because then you say, I'm not going to use Facebook anymore. I'm going to create more content through Instagram. Okay, well, the fact that Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp 
almost insulates it from you as a consumer having a choice to say, Facebook's not a good product. I want to use this instead. Well, Facebook's insulated from that. They still get your data. They still have done uh, unsavory things with your data and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the argument for breaking it up. And he kind of makes that case that breaking it up would then kind of remove some of that power from Facebook. It would decentralize it a little bit and uh, I, I guess uninsulate it from that criticism and from that feedback from consumers. So what, what do you make of all this? I mean, my opinion on it is I, I agree with Mark that the argument, oh, Benioff, not Zuckerberg, <laughs> that the, We'll call him Benny and Zuck. Yeah, Benny and Zuck. I, I agree with Benny here because <clears throat> I don't think it is a cogent argument to say, oh, you have to let us retain complete control over your social media and online presence because right. we are doing the best possible job of being the, for lack of a better word, the thought police on said content that is unsavory. We are here to protect the truth and right. get rid of the lies. Clearly, they're doing the literal opposite of that. Very much. Very much so because their business model runs on engagement and it runs on whatever gets the most views is technically what is going to draw the most traffic to our site. And we want that. That's why the argument of like let's ban someone like the president from Twitter right. is goofy because Twitter's never going to do that. The president probably draws in some of the most attention to their platform ever. Why would they do that? It goes against their business model and at the end of the day, it's a business model, not like a moral argument that every day they wake up and say we need to be the truth tellers on social media. We need to be the advocates for for real you know, what is real and what is not. Right. There was a, I read a really interesting tweet from Ezra Klein of Vox, who I think is an intelligent thinker on things like this. And the tweet said, I don't think the problem with Facebook is that it allows lies. I think the problem is it sorts everything, both lies and truth, by engagement. The quickest paths to engagement and inspiration... Excuse me. The quickest paths to engagement are inspiration and offensiveness, mm -hmm. and offensiveness has proven easier than inspiration. And I think that's a really good point, that this is a platform that's based on how much you engage with different things. And the more zany, the more out there, the more offensive is, is one way to put it, I would say... Um, What's another way to put it? Almost combative. Yeah, or the, if, the it, more, if it creates drama or conflict yes, in any yes. way. The, yeah. more, the more conflict you can create, the more engagement you're going to get, the more comments, the more angry people are going to get, you know, commenting on things, but just boost the heck out of whatever that content is. Right. And so it's a model built on creating this kind of thing, which is not the kind of uh, atmosphere for, you know, positive discourse on any way, shape, or form. Right. And I think it we need to change our public conversation around how we use social media and what kind of responsibility the business owners of said social media should have on what the real impact of social media is. It has become the public forum. You know, like when we protect free speech and we talk about, you know, we need to protect the right of assembly and we need to protect the public forum, you know, people aren't going out into the middle of the street and preaching their ideology and getting, you know, a crowd riled up to talk to them and, and understand what's going on. That's happening on social media now. Right. That is how we're disseminating information in real time. And so the business model of anything that gets the most attention, let's just amp it up and this is what's going to draw people into our platform isn't intrinsically bad. We just either need to change our public conversation around, okay, social media is the bathroom wall. And we need to allow anything and everything, but we need to create a system that allows you to better decipher 
what is authentic and what is uh, not, or uh, I think we need to restructure how we talk about social media so that it really is something where there is fact-checking ability, there is, you know, real, um, I don't know, oversight over the kind of content that is allowed and the mm-hmm. kind of content that is acceptable and I'm I'm kind of torn on it because I I'm a big free speech advocate. I'm, right. I'm a I'm a big guy on look. It, I don't want shady big tech rich executives being the ones that have the final say on this is what's allowed and what isn't allowed on the most important communicative platforms of our time. Right. Who makes those decisions? I think that is what we need to be talking about here. And when we talk about breaking up Facebook, I think that needs to be the core of it. It's like who. Who do we want to trust to make these kinds of final says on what we see, how we see it, and how we interpret it? And, you know, should the bird or like should the responsibility be on the overseers or should it be on educating the people at the bottom to better understand how to sift through the content that they consume? So it's it's tough. Every time I feel like I have a grasp on who should be in control. The other that that side makes an argument for why they absolutely should not be right. in control. <laughs> right. And so I end up back at this kind of square one type feeling no, of man. like what the heck do we do about this? It's but, tough. You know what we need to do right now is step aside, take a quick break. When we get back, we're gonna go to Qatar, we're gonna talk drive throughs, we're gonna have a lot more coming up here on business casual, so don't go anywhere. Juicy. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news, you're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketSkill can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketskill.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. I always sing along to that background song on that. Oh, it's so good, ad. right? Oh, no, no. And I don't know. It gets stuck in my head, dude. Definitely. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. Oh my, oh my. So good. Yeah. So good. All right. <clears throat> so another very interesting building management, facility management, city design story here. We're seeing Qatar, the country, really embracing this idea of AC everywhere. Air conditioning all the time everywhere and it's as much as it's an engineering conversation it's Mm -hmm. also kind of an existential conversation here so let's jump in so qatar is one of the richest countries on earth right it's also and and by that i mean it the country itself has a lot of wealth uh it's also one of the hottest countries on earth and they're facing the heat of climate change sooner than a lot of other countries Uh, and they're also equipped to handle it more than a lot of other countries because of that wealth and because for them it ends up becoming more of an engineering dilemma instead of the existential one that a lot of poorer global south very hot countries have to face they've got the funds they can approach it from kind of a a tech angle how do we solve this at like a kind of a a reactive position instead of a proactive position definitely um it doesn't mean it's a bad one it just means it has some unintended consequences so The reason why I think Qatar is in the public conversation a little more is because of the World Cup. 
which is going to be there in 2022. Correct. I remember when that was first announced, I was like, impossible. They're not actually going to do this, right? No, they did it. But <laughs> they were going to do, yeah, we can do the summer. Uh, but <laughs> as we saw, building the stadiums during the summer, getting Qatar ready for the influx of tourists was literally killing people. Yeah. People were dying from heat exhaustion, from dehydration, building the stadiums and the infrastructure. And it caused such an uproar that the cup was actually delayed to November of 2022 for their milder winter. So even in winter, it's still pretty spicy. And yes. <laughs> right now it's summer and it's still spicy. It's spicy hot there. And how do you combat that? Well, for example, in the stadiums, they've been outfitted with rows and rows of beautifully designed, actually, you should check out some pics, very nicely designed cool air vents, which are pumping chilled air to the fans in the stadium and cool air um, sinks. So it actually keeps the uh, the field itself cool. And That's interesting. Sinking to the players. So, you know, a little bit of science and engineering there for you on this Friday morning. But this extends beyond the stadiums. It's not just a sporting thing or a luxury. It's becoming almost a necessity to enjoy nightlife, to enjoy daylife market shopping, to enjoy being in an open city in these blistering hot summers. So facility management is really having to extend to the streets with rows and rows of chilling AC units lining commercial outdoor areas. Um, thoughts on that before I get into some climate change convo here? I mean, it sounds like just such a huge undertaking to uh, to do that. Um, but I also understand this is like one of the biggest uh, events in the world. Yeah. So I, I, I get all of that. It's just such a huge undertaking. And I'm wondering about, and, and I'm sure we're going to get into this on some level, the environmental impact of right. all of the energy it's going to take to power and to run and to cool down all of these fans and that sort of thing. That, that to me just seems like, oh, that's going to be huge. Right. Well, what's interesting is climate activists in Qatar are even sympathetic to what's happening because to a degree, there's no other choice. Right. Like literally, um, there are some uh, artists and activists there that are saying soon Qatar is going to be kind of like a dystopian utopia of urban development. They called it, it was Gulf Futurism, where basically Interesting. they're going to have no choice but to just live indoors because yeah. it's just so hot. Yeah. And that you know, to to their benefit, they obviously have the funds to make that happen. But imagine when that happens to extremely poor countries. Sure. Uh, imagine if that comes to our most arid and hot states here in the United States. Really, it just becomes an insidious cycle of money and emissions mm -hmm. running and cooling and trying to keep the way we're doing things alive. Uh, and yet we need to be talking more proactively. How do we cool or reverse this insidious heat. Um, so to a degree, it's a question of survival for the area. To a degree, it's a question of, um, you know, how do we look beyond just cooling our hot markets outside, right. but getting to a point where we don't need AC to line all of our streets and fans blowing mist on everyone like Six Flags 100% of the time. Right. Um, it's it's just, it's very strange. And it's very, well, it's not strange. It's, it's scary, actually. Um, and beyond that... I think if you are a tech business that is in AC, uh, is in HVAC just in general, is right. in uh, building management, I think you should start investing money in renewables or cooling tech that takes advantage of carbon removal technology as well, mm -hmm. that takes mm -hmm. advantage of green technology, or at least is funded by renewable energy because if we're trying to be proactive when combating this, we can't also be funding a ton of AC. Yes, 
that's run off of extreme carbon emissions, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It literally is just an insidious cycle, and we'll get to a point where we can't do anything else about it. So really cool building management uh, wins in Qatar. I really yeah. encourage our listeners to go look at how they're dealing with this issue. It's it's really inventive and really neat. But I also encourage everyone to be thinking about it a little more existentially. This isn't the end solution. We need to be talking about you know how can businesses invest in solutions that look beyond the now but look into the future and the past a little bit to try to solve some of the stuff we've already done. Yeah, I think I think the World Cup going to Qatar and kind of the, the way that that whole thing is going down is showing both like the, I, I think you're right, like the, the, just calling it what, the utopian dystopia or yeah. dystopian utopia, uh-huh. w- one or the other, where you see these beautiful, big, amazing things being built, but then anytime you look at the underbelly of it, it's always seedy. It right. always <laughs> makes you feel really dirty. There's human rights violations going on all over the place mm-hmm. with basically slave labor to build some of these stadiums so you see the beautiful things being built and then you see the underside of it same same thing with the air conditioning uh, argument you know you see these things happening you think that's you know that's amazing that's inventive that's really cool that they're able to do that and then you see the other side and you think this is just uh, going in a bad direction right i want things to go so right. yeah that that's that's how that whole situation feels to me agreed all right t we're gonna do a final quickie here to wrap up this is a lighter story but also really bizarre we're seeing U.S. cities ban the construction of new drive throughs That's interesting. It's very interesting. Minneapolis, Long Beach, Fairhaven, cities across the U.S. are banning the building of new drive throughs via some city ordinances. And it's focused on reducing trash. It's focused on cutting emissions and pedestrian accidents. But it's also kind of an anti-obesity um, public health movement. Interesting. So Canadian research of some 27 cities in Canada that had regulations like this found that in their region, curbing drive throughs had some kind of net positive effect on public health. Hmm. On the other side, there are economists that kind of scoff at this idea and say, look, what you're doing is kind of a joke. Like, if you really want to address public health, the answer is not to get rid of drive throughs Right. Um, and the, the director of... Hudson Institute's Food Policy Center, Mr. Hank Cardello, he had some poignant insight on the topic. He said, quote, instead of banning drive throughs we need to put pressure on the restaurant chains. As an industry, they haven't stepped up to make a commitment to cutting calories and improving nutrition to make eating healthy more of a default choice, end quote. Right. So strange kind of regulation on um, quick serve and fast food restaurants that to a degree, I kind of empathize with the heart of it, yes. the heart of that kind of regulation. Um, and I think at least from an emission standpoint, it's interesting. But I think if you're going to approach the public health angle, I think it's kind of an overstep. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of like if you really want to encourage public health, you need to educate, you need to make healthy more available, not kind of punish people's vices. You, you know what I mean? I agree with this. Yeah. I agree. And I'm not like the hugest, like, free market capitalism guy yeah. in the world. Was a fair. Yeah, e- exactly. But this feels like a backdoor way of just, like you said, trying to punish these companies for the decisions that people make. And right. so I think like if you want people to eat healthier, if that's really what you want to do, make a better argument for eating healthy, not ban drive throughs and, and that kind of thing. And make it more accessible or encourage fast food restaurants to like, we will give you tax credits if you embrace, uh, if you embrace like impossible 
meat or, right, sure. or beyond meat, right? Or if you embrace more vegetarian options or more uh, low calorie options. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it doesn't always have to be punitive. I think there are ways to encourage and incentivize companies to embrace stuff like this from a positive perspective. And right. like, look, we will actually assist you in growing your business if you embrace these things. Now, you could also do the punitive measure. If you don't embrace these things, then it's going to be a little tougher for you out there. Definitely. I don't know. It's it's a balance, but I agree. If you're really trying to address public health, cutting drive-throughs is really not going to do it. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. But we got a drive-through because we're out of time. Boom! That was, that was bad. I did my best. <laughs> no, that was great. It's time to go to the fair, man. It's fair day. Let's go get a corn dog. Yeah, definitely not a vegetarian option. Uh, there is a vegan uh, corn dog option at the State Fair of Texas. We, we might need to live stream that that tasting. <laughs> I'm not eating it. <laughs> I go all yeah, I'm natural. Not, I'm not doing it. Yeah, all natural all processed. Natural, <laughs> all natural hot dogs. I love it. That's all for this episode of Business Casual on Casual Friday. I've been one of your hosts, Tyler Kern. I'm your other one, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. We will be back on Wednesday. We'll see you then. Adios. Adios.